It's good to see you. Uh, it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Luke 9. Um, I believe we're in for a treat this morning as we hear from the Lord and what he has to say to us from this passage. You know, as we've been in this Kingdom of God series, what we find in this passage is that when we're following the Lord, we find that we are following a God who has unseen resources available to him that we often know nothing about. Uh, We are kind of dealing with what we have in front of us. We have our spreadsheets. We have the things that we can kind of total up and look at. We can kind of take inventory. And God is dealing with a completely different kind of economy than we are dealing with. Jesus has unseen resources available to him that we often know nothing about. Um, I've seen this many times in my, my own personal life, and oftentimes when the Lord shows up with his unseen resources, how he chooses to do that is he leads us through a time that is uh, kind of like a, a, deep, a deep trough in our lives, a hard time that he takes us through to show us that we need to depend on him in ways we didn't realize. Olivia and I, when I went to seminary uh, at RTS, we had come back from the mission field in China, had moved to Orlando, had bought our first house, and uh, I was enrolled in seminary. And about three weeks into seminary, I realized that our support, uh, which we were still living on support, I was still on staff with crew at the time, as often happens with missionaries when they move back from the field, our support, our financial support began to precipitously drop off. In fact, we lost $3,000 a month of support in about six weeks. And we had one supporter who, uh, this is something not to do to people when they move back from the field. This guy supported us $1,000 a month, which is a lot. And uh, I received a letter from him, which was not a letter. You opened it up, it was a yellow sticky note with one sentence on it. that said, I'm sorry because you moved back from the field, we can no longer support your ministry. Okay, so what ended up happening is uh, Olivia and I had to move, we had to, I had to drop out of seminary, uh, which was very humbling uh, for me to have to do and move back in with my parents in Birmingham and live with them uh, while we raise support. Now, that is a deep trough that the Lord took us through. And, you know, you're asking questions as you have been through times like this in your life. I'm sure something like this where you're like, Lord, this does not make any sense. I do not understand why I have to do this right now. Why is this your will? Why are you leading us through the wilderness? Well, the Lord then, as we're there In Birmingham, the Lord provided for us. Uh, We lost all that support in about six weeks. Well, as we were there, uh, the Lord saw fit to to help us raise back that support in six weeks from 28 different new donors uh, in a six-week period, which was just totally um, off the charts. Anyone who coaches people in support raising knows that that doesn't normally happen. Um, It was just an unbelievable sign that God has unseen resources available to him that we often just know nothing about. I was talking with a brother recently who went through a really difficult time in his life. And, and now the Lord has, has met he and his family with tremendous blessing. The blessing is as great as the trough. And he said to me, he's very mathematically minded and He's like, I don't really understand. You know, the Lord could have led us on a direct line from point A to point B. But he instead chose to lead us down so far and then up so fast. And yet we we got to the same place that we were at the beginning of all of this. 
why is that the way the Lord worked in this situation? Of course, I think he knew, he, he knew his answer. You know, the Lord is more concerned about our hearts and our dependence on him and looking to him as the one who, who resources us than looking to ourselves and believing that we can provide for ourselves and our own resources. I was driving in this morning from Panera to the church, and I came upon a car, you know, bumper sticker in front of me that I thought uh, well illustrated the exact opposite of what I'm saying today in my sermon. It said, if, if what you seek you do not find within, you will never find without. If what you seek you do not find within, you will never find without. This person is saying, I provide for myself. If you can't find what you need inside of yourself, it doesn't exist. Jesus is saying, you can't find anything in and of yourself that is truly worth living for. I am the one who provides for your needs. And so the Lord is showing us, and he's showing the disciples here that he's a God of unseen resources. So the question for us today and every day of our lives is, when, when will we learn to trust the Lord no matter how bleak the circumstances may appear? When will we learn, like the Israelites, the Lord provided for them so many times in the desert, and yet we, like the Israelites, as we journey on, reach these places where, again, we say to the Lord, where are you? Are you going to provide for me? But yet the Lord is there. When Jesus is in the room, we have power available to us that we don't often take into account. So first of all, today we're going to talk about a mission of unseen resources, a mission of unseen resources. And then second, we're going to talk about a picture of unseen resources. And then finally, the path of unseen resources. So a mission, a picture, and a path. So first of all, the mission of unseen resources. So in chapter 9, as we've been journeying through some of Luke together, there's a discernible shift in the way that Jesus begins to lead his disciples. Before chapter 9, Jesus is basically doing everything for them. And they're just along for the ride. And now Jesus is beginning to share his ministry with them. He knows he's going to be leaving soon. And so he's beginning to prepare his disciples. He's shifting from learning by observing to learning by doing with his disciples. And this is one of the most important spiritual lessons that the disciples need to learn on this. That he's going to call them on this short-term mission trip is that they need to learn to trust God, that they cannot always equate their current reality and their current resources with what God is going to do. And they need to understand that God is standing right behind them with resources available to them if they will step out in faith. So how does Jesus get them ready? Well, first of all, he gives them his status. He gives them his status. In verse 1, he, he, Jesus tells them, I am giving you my power and my authority. And then in verse 2, he, he says, I am sending you out, and he is sending them out as the apostles. And so what is going on here is that they are being sent out as ambassadors. And if you think about ambassadors in our country, the only power that ambassadors have at all is the power that they are invested in by the president of the United States. So if we send out an ambassador to another country, he's just a man. He's just a man, and, and if the resources of the government and of the president are not standing behind the ambassador, he, he has nothing. So if he is going out and making promises or he's making statements that, that we're going to do this or we're going to do that and the president is not behind him, he's completely left on his own. 
And that is a great analogy for what we learn here about the disciples' ministry is Jesus is sending them out, and he's sending them out as ambassadors, he's, and he's sending you and I out as ambassadors as well. And he is entrusting us with his status. He's saying, if you go out and you go on my behalf, and you speak in my name, I am there, and whatever you say, whatever you are, are there, whatever you're praying about, whatever you're preaching about, I am there behind you, and I am there to answer prayer. I am there to work in that situation. So he's sending them out with his status. He's also sending them out with his mission. They are being sent out to do the very same things that Jesus would have been doing. What has Jesus been doing? He's basically been preaching, and he has been praying for healing, or he has been healing people directly. So preaching was always primary for Jesus. And then the healings or the miracles, as we'll see even in this passage with the feeding of the 5,000, these miracles are always there to back up or show people that the preaching, that the word of God is real. That that these words that Jesus is speaking, that it is backed up with a real kingdom of God that is coming on earth. There are real resources available that are actually, the kingdom of God is breaking into the world in real physical fashion in ways that Jesus is saying these physical miracles corroborate or correspond to the spiritual kingdom that I am preaching about. So what do the disciples do? They go out to preach and to heal. And let me tell you, as a preacher, I have no power at all to change anyone's heart or anyone's life. As a pastor, as I pray for people, I have no power at all to, to heal people or to, to change their circumstances at all. And same for you. When you share the gospel with your, your family or your neighbor or you pray for someone to be healed, you and I, we are ambassadors of the king. We personally have no power. We have no ability to change anyone's life or anyone's circumstances But when we go, we have a God of unseen resources who stands behind us, who in fact is at work to change people's lives, to change people's hearts. As the word is preached, the reason why it's effective is because the Holy Spirit is at work. As we pray for people, we're going to pray for for folks after the service today. We, We pray believing that the Lord is present with us and is at work through our prayers. This is what we do as those who follow Christ. There was one day early on in in church planting when, I mean, this feels like a small crowd today. I mean, you should see the early days of church planting. I mean, there are some times you show up and, I mean, there's ain't anybody there. I mean, there's like 30 people there or something like that or less. And, uh, but it was one of these days where I just felt, I felt just really discouraged and extremely tired. And I was sitting on the front row, like Kathy read scripture today. And as I was sitting on the front row, I can't remember who was reading scripture that day. But I just felt like the Lord just gave me a picture in my mind of just a tidal wave of grace that was standing behind me. And I felt, I felt in getting up to preach just so insignificant and small. But the Lord stands behind his people, and he's ready to meet us in our lives, in whatever is going on in our lives, with the tidal wave of his grace. So sometimes, like the apostles, we see physical healings like we saw a month ago with Ethan and sometimes we see spiritual healings. We see people's lives changed. Sometimes it takes longer. Uh, sometimes we don't know that we see what we want to see, but we, we believe that we have a God of unseen resources behind us. So the Lord gives us his status and his mission. And then he also gives us his resources. I find this, 
we get to verse 3 where Jesus told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there till you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So what Jesus knows is the most important thing the disciples can realize is that they are utterly dependent upon him. They are completely dependent on him. I want you to imagine if in your company, you know, or in, in some, you know, whatever business model your company is following, if this was the, the vision, you know, we don't have any resources, guys. We got, we got nothing for you. But here's what we want you to do. We just want you to go out and we'll just see, we'll just see what happens. I mean, this is not a model. And, and in fact, what we need to, to realize is that the business world has been imported into the church. You need to recognize that we often in the church have imported like a Harvard Business School model for how we function, which is we need a certain amount of resources, we believe, in order to fulfill the mission. So we have to go out, we have to align all the resources first around the vision, and then we can go out and execute the mission. Well, Jesus is doing the opposite here, the very opposite. In fact, Harvard Business School would hate Jesus. They really would. They'd be like, this guy's nuts. I mean, he's a great vision caster, and he definitely believes in what he's saying, but the guy's crazy. You got to have the resources first. Got to have them first. You don't go out first and then hope something happens. But Jesus exactly is calling his church to that. He's saying, I want you to follow me, and I want you to trust me that as you step out in faith, in fact, this is the normative way that Jesus works throughout his ministry is that he calls us to trust him before we see the resources. He calls us to follow, think about the disciples, he calls the disciples to follow him regardless. Follow me, Jesus says. I'll make you fishers of men. Well, what does that mean? Well, of course they didn't know, but they followed him anyway. And then along the way, can you imagine if Jesus would have told them everything that would happen in advance? They would have never followed him. No way! They would have never done it. It was too far-fetched. It was too outlandish. They had to experience it as they went along. And so Jesus calls us to follow him before we know all the answers. We would wait to garner as many financial resources as possible, as many bright people around us, as much extra financial cushion, the latest sure-bet ministry strategies to take to get the job done. In fact, if we had it our way, what we would love to do is we would love to figure out a way to totally eliminate the need to depend on God. If we could, we would love to have enough resources at our disposal, enough smart people in the room, to where if God shows up, that's a bonus. That would be, that's, things are still going to be fine, even if God doesn't show up, because we have all this stuff. This is great. I mean, this is really what we see in evangelicalism today. If you've got a really, you know, if you've got, a great facility, you've got great worship leaders, you've got a really good speaker, then that's all you really need. Yeah, you need some financial resources too, and then you're good. You know, if Jesus shows up, then that's a bonus. Instead of it it being that we are utterly dependent on the Lord God for everything that we have. We would rather say something like this to Jesus after verse 3 and 4. Jesus, after careful assessment with our business team, it turns out we don't have enough resources to get the job done. It just doesn't work out on paper. You can look at this. Look at this analysis that we've done. 
But that's not the way that Jesus works. Jesus says we will never have the resources we need to complete the mission if we don't follow him. Think about scripture. Think about redemptive history. With Noah, he says, build a boat even though it's never rained before. Trust me. With Abram, he says, leave your very wealthy father and your country and go to a land that I have showed you. With Moses, he says, go to Pharaoh and all I'm giving you is my name behind you. I am. That's all you need. And these men do it. Hebrews 11 is filled with men and women who follow the Lord in ways that seem outlandish to people at Harvard. So trusting God by faith is always God's way to accomplish the mission. What can we learn here in this first section? What we can learn is we need far less than we think we need materially before we should feel confident in following the Lord. We need far less than we think we do materially before we should feel confident in trusting God. The second thing we learn is God still calls people in churches to do his work and to provide as you go along and not beforehand. This is normal in the Christian life. Another thing that's normal is God does not call his people to have safety nets ready before they follow him. You're not supposed to have a cushion. It's nice when you do, but it can't be a prerequisite for following Jesus. So we have a God who calls us to follow him. Second of all, we have a picture of unseen resources in this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. So the disciples see God at work. So the, the disciples go out, and they, what do they see? They, they don't take anything with them, and actually God provides. N- maybe not in like, they're not like rich at the end of the mission, right? They don't have like everything. But everything, they got everything they needed. It was okay. They had a place to stay. They, they rarely spent a night out on the street. And, and somehow the Lord provided for them. And so they came back, and, and what people got, people got saved. People came to Christ. People were healed. They saw God at work. They were, they were really energized. And so they see God at work on the mission. And they serve as ambassadors so well that Herod hears about all that's happening. And one really great sign of knowing, the, are you doing good work, is that Herod doesn't talk about the disciples He hears about what the disciples are doing and and realizes there's something going on with Jesus. So when people are talking about Jesus and not you, when you're involved in ministry, that's always a really good sign. And so they've come back and they're really tired. And so Jesus says, let's go away to Bethsaida and get some rest. So the disciples thought they had completed their short-term mission trip and it was time to rest. They'd gone on their six-week trip. They'd come back. It was time for a retreat. They were really happy that Jesus noticed that they were tired. And so they go, you know, they go. And un- unfortunately for them, like 5,000 other people heard that they were going to go to this place with Jesus. So they were not expecting that. They were really actually expecting to get some rest, spend some alone time with Jesus, with their cup of coffee and their journal. And they, that's not what happened. You know, that didn't happen for them. What ended up happening is that all these people came and they ended up, Jesus ended up preaching to them, and he ended up healing them, and then it gets to be late in the day, and they're tired, and Jesus uh, decides in this moment he's going to give them a picture of his kingdom. So the feeding of the 5,000 is a well-known miracle. Uh, I'm not going to go into exorbitant detail here. It's actually, interestingly, the only other miracle in the Gospels that's in all four other Gospels besides the resurrection. 
So this one made an impression. Okay, this one really landed. You got 5,000 men and like 5,000 women and maybe like 10,000 children if it's anything like Trinity Park, right? So you got like 20,000 people or something there. There's a lot of people there. And somehow God sovereignly orchestrated that none of these people thought about bringing food with them. You know, like how did that work? I mean, they just had like a moment where they were so into Jesus that they decided I just don't even need food. Uh, and except for one boy uh, thought about it, and he brought five loaves and two fish. And so you know the story. The crowds have gathered. It's getting late. They don't have any food. And G- the disciples come to Jesus to inform him because Jesus didn't know already that they don't have any food. And so Jesus says to them something really interesting. He said, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Remember, Jesus is making this transition between I'm going to do everything for you to you need to partner with me, follow me, uh, walk with me in ministry and do some things um, on your own but dependent on me. And so Jesus says, you give them something to eat. That's surprising. A couple of things. Jesus puts the expectation back onto them. When ministry happens, you need to meet those needs in my name. He says, you give them something to eat. The second thing that's interesting that I think is a question we need to ask is, did Jesus actually think that if the disciples trusted him by faith, that they could have fed these people if they were dependent on Jesus because he was there in the room. I think that's what Jesus actually means. I think he actually means that because I'm here with you, you can feed these people. You can feed these people through me. But Jesus knew that he had unseen resources available that the disciples didn't understand. They failed to factor in that God Almighty was with them. And so Jesus gives them this picture of for all time where he prays, he prays to God, he thanks God, and then he begins to distribute, people get into groups of 50, and they begin to distribute the food, and there's so much food left over, there are 12 basketfuls left over. Why 12 basketfuls? Well, a couple of things. One could be that it's the number of the tribes of Israel, which in the reconstitution of the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, I have enough resources in me for the entire church of God universal, all the tribes of Israel and the new Israel that are going to come to me. I think that's one legitimate reason why this happened. I think another reason why this happened is that there are 12 disciples. And he's saying, guys, not only can I barely provide for everybody, I can provide so much that there's enough, there's a basketful left over for each of you to kind of look at and go, wow. Wow. Okay, who is this Jesus that we are with now. And so I'm sure the disciples were nervous back when Jesus said, it's your turn to go out and minister. I'm sure they were more nervous when Jesus said, take nothing for the journey. Now, I'm, you know, they're just like, wow, they're blown away by who Jesus is. And so that's where we go now, where Jesus calls the question with them. Who do you say that I am in this next session? The section, the path of unseen resources is the third point. So like a one-man catering service, Jesus just provided food for like 20,000 people. And now he wants them to ask themselves the question, who is this? Who is this? We need to understand that these 10 or 20,000 people are, this is what people are talking about. Who is this? Is this the Messiah? Is this the Christ? 
It's the reincarnation of Elijah or Moses or what is happening right now. We don't understand who is this. But what Jesus wants the disciples and he wants every single one of us to ask ourselves is that question, not who do other people say that I am. That's a question. But the most important question is who do you say, who do you say that I am? That's what he wants the disciples to wrestle with. The most important question that we could ask, that anyone could ask themselves. It matters what you say about Jesus. So Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ of God. So Peter had been watching. Had he been waiting, I think he'd been waiting for his moment. He'd been thinking about this and this was the time. He's a verbal processor. And so he's like, boom, you're the Christ of God. You know, C.S. Lewis had a different experience about how he came to know Christ. Interesting, he says, I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny, sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is awake. Now maybe that's it for you. Maybe it's not been this long, deep struggle of belief, but you just find yourself believing in Christ now. Now it's beautiful if that's your story. You don't have to have some dramatic moment on the, on the road to Damascus or something. You can just come to faith and believe. However it is, we all have to answer this question, have you embraced Christ by faith? Whatever the case for Peter, beforehand he didn't see who Jesus was, and now he does. Now he's ready to talk about it. We all need to make that transition in our own heart and in our own life. Most commentators see this as the high point of Luke's gospel until the resurrection. So this is the first high point. This is the high point where the first person, Peter, recognizes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. How do you answer this important question? I don't want you to be distracted in this moment. I want you to think, who do you say that Jesus is? Well, if you, like Peter, answer, you are the Christ, the Son of God, well, what does Jesus then tell us to expect at that point? This is also something that Harvard would hate. Um, This is not, I mean, Jesus is not a closer. He's not closing the deal. Uh, He's saying, if you want to follow me, Uh, It's not going to be one glorious moment after another in your life. There are going to be deep, deep struggles that you'll walk through with me. He says, anyone who follows me must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow after me. If you want to find your life, you need to lose it. If you seek to save your own soul, then you will lose it for eternity. And this was no parable. This is real life. Jesus is saying this is real. He's not just using allegory. I mean, think about what he's already said. He said, take no bag, no tunic to the mission. He said, you give them something to eat, and now he's saying, take up your cross and follow me. I guarantee you've never seen a bumper sticker with any of those sentences on it. Uh, This is Jesus saying that if you're going to follow after me, where I'm going is the cross. That's where I'm going. And so what David Platt says that Jesus is calling us to is to self-renunciation. 
self-renunciation to renouncing yourself as the center of your life, to to self-satisfaction, self-absorption, the rule of your own self at the center of your life, and instead saying, I want to follow Christ. I want what Christ has for me, whatever that means. Jesus tells us that discipleship begins with self-denial. But why? Okay, that sounds morbid, right? It sounds like, why would anyone choose to do this? It's because self-denial is not the end of the story. Self-renunciation is not the end of the story. The cross is not the end of the story. What's the end of the story is that on the other side of, of giving up yourself, of losing your soul for the sake of Christ, you gain Christ. You gain him in his resurrection. You gain all of these unseen resources of God. You walk into a narrative, a plan of resurrection where God is meeting you and he will meet you and he will rebuild your life and he will change your story in beautiful and redemptive ways that you could never have amassed through your careful planning and strategizing that you so, what you so desperately want in your life, you can never have. What do you so desperately want? You want satisfaction in your soul. You want to be able to, to get rid of whatever evil and, and sin that exists there. You, you have no pathway for that outside of a cross and outside of an empty tomb. And Jesus says, if you will follow me, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, if you will come and die, I will meet you there with all of my resurrection resources. You will be included in my kingdom. Remember, as we went through the Sermon on the Mount, the first of all of those is blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. That's what this is saying. Jesus is saying, no, for real. I'm not saying poor in spirit isn't a nice idea. I want you to follow me in death and resurrection, and you will experience what I have for you. But we need to get real here because there are a lot of people who know this is true about Christianity, but they then try to make Christianity into some like weird quasi-version of following Jesus and pursuing everything that they want in life. It's the Jesus plus version of Christianity that is so common in our lives. It's, in, it's not just common out there, it's common in here if we're not really careful. There was a renowned English novelist, his name was Somerset Maugham, and he wrestled with these terms of discipleship at the end of his life. His nephew Robin describes what it was like to visit his uncle at the end of his life. Listen to what he says. He says, I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remembered that the villa itself and the wonderful garden I could see through the windows was a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean worth 600,000 pounds in 1965. Willie had 11 servants, including a cook. He dined off silver plates. He was waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henry, his footman, but it it no longer meant anything to him. The following afternoon, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible, which had very large print because he was 91. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. And he said, I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I came across the quotation, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I must tell you, his name was Robin, his his nephew, I must tell you, my dear Robin, that that text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. 
But afterwards, Mogam said, of course I now know that's a bunch of bunk. And he went on and never came to Christ, never gave up his life. It's such a common and sad story, but such a common story for us that we would either utterly, totally reject Christ or try to say, Jesus, I'll follow you if you give me X, Y, Z. But Jesus says, I'm calling you to follow me. I'm calling you down a path of losing your life in order to find it. And as a preacher of God's word, I have to be clear here. Jesus did not say, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever thinks about, dabbles in the idea of, or considers the possibility of losing his life for my sake will save it. He actually says it. He calls us to give up our lives for him. That's what he says. And that is the path. That path of poor in spirit, that path of self-denial is the path of the cross. And it's the only path to the empty tomb. You can't get to the resurrection without experiencing the cross. This is something the global church knows utterly well. The, the, The global church has a theology of suffering, of cross that leads to resurrection of denying yourself in order to gain a life in Christ that we can never have for ourselves. Because for them, for much of the global church, they don't have much. And so to give up what they have, they give up because they're like, the kingdom of God has to be greater than what I have here. But for us as Americans, we have so much. We have so much. And it's 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 a great temptation for us to invest our lives in the resources around us instead of believing and trusting in a God of unseen resources where we have to die to ourselves to experience him. Jesus says the promise, it's a promise in verses 24 and 25. If you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. I promise you, you will have everything that you need if you will give up your life for my sake. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest proof that God is a God of unseen resources. Who would think that God could be raised from the dead? Therefore, whatever you are facing, whatever you're called to give up for the sake of Christ, it will be met with blessing from the Lord. Blessing that will meet you in your deepest places and will transform your life. What do we do with this? What is one way God could be calling you to renounce yourself and trust him for unseen resources? Well, maybe you've all but given up on your marriage at this point. Well, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible. Don't give up hope. Maybe one of your kids is struggling mightily, and you're beginning to believe that there is no hope for your child, spiritually, physically, psychologically, whatever they're going through. There is hope in Jesus Christ. There are unseen resources available to you and to your child. Maybe you consistently have opportunities to climb the corporate ladder, but each step up that ladder requires you to give up something, your morals, your family, to give up something that you know God doesn't want you to give up. And for you, it is a real sacrifice to turn away from the path that everyone else is taking and to take a lower path, a a path of self-renunciation and trusting Christ for your financial security in your career. Maybe you have some money and resources, but now that the economy is turning down, you're tempted to be less generous. I know I've felt that temptation in myself. You're tempted to feel like you're dealing with a pie that's this big, and there's no way that God might bring something in from outside of that. And maybe God's calling you to follow him and to give some of that away. 
Maybe you feel like you're stuck in your personal growth. There's an area where you've been, you're aware that you need to grow as a Christian, and you just don't feel like it's happening. A, I might challenge that. Maybe you are growing. But B, even if you feel like you're, you're not growing, God can press through. God can break through strongholds. He's a God of unseen resources. Maybe you've never trusted God before for salvation. Maybe you never have. Maybe you've never come to a point where you said, Jesus, I give up myself. I, I deny myself in order to give you all that I have. Some of what you're going to give God in that is your sin. You're going to give him things that are really messed up and broken in your life. And you need to trust that God forgives you and will heal you and transform you. And some of the things you're going to give up are good things that God has given you. But you've been looking to those good things. It could be a career. It could be a, a spouse. It could be who knows what, your home or whatever it is, your hopes and dreams. And, and they're good things. But, you're, but they're actually, if you serve those things and you make those things ultimate things, then they, they start to erode your soul. And so God is calling you to follow him for the first time. You can do that today by trusting Christ by faith. It is normative in the Christian life that we follow God by faith. When we follow God by faith, what that means is we don't know exactly how the Lord is going to provide. We don't get to wait until God already provides and then step out in faith. That's not faith, okay? We have to trust God on the front and stepping out in faith, believing the Lord will meet us, and he will every time. The, the empty tomb is proof that the resurrection of Christ is real. And you, when you get included in the resurrection on the other side of death to self, you enter into a kingdom of life everlasting. And the Lord will bless us as we trust in him and follow the God of unseen resources. Let's pray. Father, we just confess this morning that there are many ways that um, we have not denied ourselves, Father. So I pray that as you make it clear to us in this time of communion how we have been serving ourselves instead of serving you, that we would just lay that before you and believe that you forgive. There are also many of us, Lord, who um, haven't trusted you in faith in a, in a while. It's been a while since we leveraged our hope all of our hope, and put the pivoting weight of our life onto you to, to meet us and to, to break through and to, to give us things that we can't give ourselves that we, we feel like we desperately need. And so, Lord, I pray that in this moment that we would trust you. And I pray for anyone who um, has ever um, not put their faith in you, that this might be a day when they consider doing that, when you would enable them by faith to trust you, to forgive their sins, that you would bring them into your kingdom now. I pray even now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Andy's going to lead us through the Lord's Supper.